Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On this week's episode, I'm excited to welcome a guest whose considerable talents as a voice actor have been utilized to frighten audiences far and wide on the No Sleep podcast, the celebrated auditory horror anthology series. When she's not voicing all things ooky and spooky, she's on the hunt for them as host of The Cryptid Keeper, a show dedicated to the creatures that go bump in the night that may or may not be real. Please welcome to the show actor, host, and writer Addison Peacock. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. I'm really excited to talk to you. I'm excited to talk to you. Uh, especially because, uh, you know, we've we've crossed paths many times in this world of horror, and more so recently. We mm-hmm. just did a guest spot on the film Cultist uh, together, so I knew that we would uh, have a good conversation today. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, we were just on there talking about one of my favorite movies of all time. Which I plan on asking you about in a bit. Perfect. But first, before we get there, why don't we start the show the same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest. And it is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Why does Mm -hmm. horror appeal to you? Why do you think audiences are drawn to horror? But why horror? Okay, I'll talk about my personal journey with it, with the genre. Um, So I was a dark kid. I was a macabre child. Uh, And I don't know how much of that was my own issues with anxiety and how much of that was the fact that my mother started reading Edgar Allan Poe to me when I was about eight years old. But... The combination, I've always been a person whose life sort of centers around fear. I have OCD. I talk pretty openly about that. And because of that, I spent a lot of my childhood really fixated on death. Mm. Um, And I was constantly convinced I was going to contract some sort of horrible illness or die in my sleep. Uh, And I was really obsessed with death as a child. So that led to me reading a lot of kind of older gothic fiction and sort of and reading a lot about ghosts. And that sort of opened this door to the rest of my life. I've I've always wanted to live in those sort of shadowy places and kind of have a foot in the darkness, so to speak. Um, and then it grew and grew and grew as I got older. And then I stumbled upon uh, the films that would become some of my favorites. The first horror film I ever watched all the way through, because I started Poltergeist once when I was 10 and had to leave the room, was <laughs> The Shining. And I liked The Shining. Um, but it, it wasn't. It, it didn't necessarily tap on anything for which, me. Which but. is interesting because when I think of the two, I kind of feel like The Shining has more of an ominous nature. I mean, I, yes, there. I think Poltergeist is, is horrifying, mm-hmm. but Poltergeist still has that sort of like '80s shine. There it is. Does. A, there is that <laughs> the Steven Spielberg uh, overarching like aesthetic of it all. Um, Whereas I feel like The Shining should have scared you more. It did it, though, for some reason. I will say, up until... This is a thing I don't talk about a lot, actually. I didn't didn't regularly watch horror movies all the way through until probably about four years ago. I used to read horror fiction constantly, but I had... I was really bad at watching the movies. I, I think I just built them up in my head so much my imagination would kind of run crazy. I talk about this sometimes. When I was in high school, I had a two-week-long recurring nightmare because I read the Wikipedia summary of The Human Centipede. Ooh, well, I mean, that, that movie particularly, I think, uh, but, could could inspire nightmares just mm-hmm. based on concepts alone. Did you know there's this whole subculture of people who uh, don't like to watch horror movies but are obsessed with reading summaries oh, yeah. of them? Um, one of them is uh, my co-host on The Cryptic Keeper, Alex Flanagan. Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested. I actually was contacted a couple years ago by a journalist for The Wall Street Journal who was doing a piece about people who 
uh, when they're afraid to engage with something, they just read the Wikipedia summaries. Mm -hmm. And he said, he was like, do you encounter this a lot in horror? And I was like, I've heard of a few people doing Mm -hmm. it, but I didn't know it was a subculture. And that was me first, actually. I used to do that. And then I finally sat down. Oh, my God. What was it? I think I finally actually finished Poltergeist when I was in my freshman year of college. I finally watched Poltergeist all the way through. And I went, oh. That was just kind of fun. That wasn't nearly what my brain had kind of built it up to be. And then once I orp- opened the floodgates there, then I was obsessed. And, and that I think the combination of being obsessed with the macabre from a very young age and having it be this sort of thing I was really into but didn't handle very well, like spicy food. I loved to like immerse myself in scary things and then I wouldn't be able to sleep for three days. It just it just became this sort of um, it became this uh, sort of just this thing I kept coming back to over and over again and I've never been able to quit it. <laughs> what I'm fascinated by is is the engagement with the macabre but sort of the avoidance of films mm-hmm. because films are very fixed pieces of art in the way that they are kind of what they are. Of course we each interpret them differently but when you talk about reading horror fiction or uh, you know kind of delving into the more macabre aspects of, of, of thought process your mind is limitless. So Mm -hmm. you can take it places far scarier than what you might even see on screen. And so I'm just interested that you had kind of the reverse journey where it was like, oh, I'm free to imagine it all day, but I don't want to look at it. And it's very, I realize it sounds super, it sounds super counterintuitive, but I think to me, it seemed almost like uh, when you're reading something, you can you're sort of propelling it forward Mm -hmm. and you can sort of stop the narrative where you would like to. And I know you can technically pause or turn off a movie, but I think at the time, especially when I was a child, it felt more like I was at the mercy of the story when it was playing out on a screen in front of me. Right. And there's, you can't, you're not controlling how the narrative, how fast the narrative narrative is propelled or how your journey with it is going. And I'm also interested in the uh, in the through line of you were obsessed with death. Mm-hmm. And so that led you to really become interested and want to live, as you said, with a foot into the darkness. Mm-hmm. The idea that you wanted to always engage with the macabre in that way. Because you would think for someone who was obsessed with death, a lot of people would want to be very much away from that. And I I, I think about when we discuss, for many horror creators, there's sort of uh, a few different narratives. And one of them tends to be, I was afraid of it, so I became obsessed with it. And it's like conquering your fear. And mm-hmm. do you think that's what that was for you? Or? I think absolutely. And I think actually, um, uh, not to take it to a kind of a dark personal place very quickly, but I, I it's not a coincidence that me getting sort of diving headfirst into horror cinema came uh, at the same time as I had an incredibly traumatic personal experience. Um, I won't go into details. I'm not going to do that to you or your audience. But uh, my freshman year in college, I was a victim of a sexual assault and I experienced PTSD from that. And something that really helped me in a very strange, I don't know if it's exposure therapy, I don't know what it is. I know I'm not the only woman or survivor who does has done this. I got really deep into horror films, specifically revenge horror and George, or just any kind of any horror with a final girl. Right. I needed to see like a woman emerge from the fray, just covered in blood and maybe a little battered and a little broken, but surviving. And that was, and that meant so much to me uh, around that time. That was when I watched, I, that was when I really got into Jennifer's body. It was when I really got into, um, oh God, uh, I spit on your grave at one point, uh, several different things like that. Although that's a little bit different, but 
I got into horror and specifically kind of revenge stories. And so I'm interested in this path, though, the idea of uh, I think there is the broader sense that we look at these movies in some ways as catharsis. Mm-hmm. But now you're talking about a very real life trauma that proves this, that you you it kind of invested the trauma and you invested the fear into these things that had kind of an emotional release Mm -hmm. because maybe the existential reality, you can't always find life in a nebulous, like release in a nebulous world. Mm -hmm. But I think that the the pull to the horror movies is very interesting because you're saying that was kind of what helped you get through it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm I'm curious about I Spit on Your Grave. You mentioned that title, and that is very divisive title. Yeah, it's a movie that I think at the time I first watched it was helpful to me. It's not a movie I I don't want to come down too hard on either particular side. It's not a movie I would ever watch again. Right. I don't have the attachment. Like, it's not a movie that I find helpful to me now the way that a teeth or a Jennifer's body is. Now, it, and it is, from an academic standpoint, when I spit on your grave is referenced, uh, there are those who fall in line, on the side of the line that it is a feminist narrative. And there are others who say that it very much is not. And I'm just kind of curious what your take would be on that. I don't think it's a feminist narrative. I think that the potentially helpful, or not even helpful, cathartic aspects that it may have for I know there are survivors who find catharsis in that film and I know there are some who hate it and will never touch it with a 10-foot pole and I think that the beneficial aspects of that film are entirely accidental I don't think that those filmmakers were trying to tell a story that was going to do anything like and I don't mean to and I don't say this even to cast aspersions I just mean that I don't think it was meant I think it was just meant to be a story about a uh, like I think it was just meant to be a horror film. I don't think it was meant to have like a beneficial aspect or a cathartic aspect. Just the way that it's framed. Right. Like one of the biggest accusations or one of the biggest reasonable criticisms of it is the way that the assault is framed. And I just, yeah, it's not, I don't think the intent was for it to be helpful. It's interesting too, because I spit on your grave definitely falls under a banner of uh, style of cinema that we refer to as exploitation cinema. Yes. And it is. Yes. And exploitation cinema, I think, in today's world is is very few and far between. People aren't making it, or if they are making it, it's more of a nostalgia factor, like mm-hmm. we're making an homage version of that. And I, I think that what's interesting is a lot of these movies that fall under the exploitation banner are very much, by the litmus of what we look at things today, very problematic. Oh, yeah. But because they tackled issues, even if they weren't necessarily aware of the issues they were tackling, Mm -hmm. we sort of kind of grandfather some of them in, in terms of like, okay, it has its place in horror history or genre Mm -hmm. history. Uh, And we talk about this as well as sort of like kind of the the very problematic reveal at the end of Sleepaway Camp. Yes. But Uh, it's also one of those like, okay, we we recognize you made this then. Mm-hmm. Don't do it now. Yes, it's yeah. like a, it's a relic of the past. It's like reading it's like reading Tom Sawyer or something. Right. Or or reading to kill a mockingbird and being like this had its place. It does these things well, it does these things not so well. Um not quite obviously not comparing the two works in any way. Just of, sort of Of course, of course. The fact that you have to sort of or or that not you don't have to, but the fact that we tend to sort of 
want to celebrate the things that maybe it was doing that no one else had done yet, but then acknowledge that it has it doesn't really have a place in the modern film world. Right, right. Uh, in the modern discussion. I would say the 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 films that I ended up gravitating toward that I genuinely, that I still will watch, I think I even told you, uh, like, off mic at one point, that uh, when a certain person was confirmed to the Supreme Court, who shall not be named, I... I was having I had a bit of a PTSD episode and I watched Jennifer's body and teeth back to back and then I felt a lot better. Uh, okay, so you've you've referenced Jennifer's body twice in this conversation. Oh yes, I have. And so I wanna I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Jennifer's body. Mm-hmm. And uh like I said, we recently discussed it together on uh Zach Sokol's show, Film Cultist, in the more like a broad discussion of, of the the movie and its its place in the, in the world of horror and its evolving place in the world of horror, mm-hmm. uh, but you had also said in uh, that discussion, which I think is very relevant here to listeners of Dead for Filth, that you feel like in many ways your connection and investment as a fan uh, of Jennifer's body also kind of helped you with your own sexual identity. Yes, so. My relationship with Jennifer's body is very interesting or very kind of not fraught, but it was it was kind of complex because I I saw the trailer and thought it looked bad and th- sort of filed it away in my head because at the time I'd bought into a lot of internalized misogyny and kind of the narrative about Megan Fox was not so generous at the time and I'd bought into that very much. Then in high school saw it on TV and at the time as a fan of Diablo Cody's work as someone who I still have a copy of Juno and I loved it a lot in that way. Mm-hmm. Then I took some time away from it for a couple of years and I was kind of going, I was going through a lot of things. I was going through the trauma I'd talked about. I was going through sort of some self-discovery, sort of analysis of relationships I'd had in high school with particularly other women, other girls. And then I watched Jennifer's Body again for the first time in a couple years. And it it hit so different uh, from a variety of ways. I, I've talked about like Jennifer's survivor narrative and the fact that she is uh, essentially cast as a victim and then reclaims that and is and becomes this uh powerful sort of predatory force and how and how empowering that was for me but also the relationship between Jennifer and Needy really spoke to me uh in a way that I hadn't thought about before uh I think Jennifer's body nails this sort of I think a lot of young queer women have had this experience of having these these friendships that are like incredibly intense and codependent and probably very unhealthy, but have this undercurrent that never, you don't ever cross the line, but there's this romantic or sexual undercurrent. There's this kind of obsessive quality. Like I had a friend in high school, I will not name her in case she might happen to hear this, but (laughs) I had a friend in high school who I... I loved her and I hated her and I wanted to be just like her and I wanted to be around her all the time. And it was just this very weird, codependent, obsessive kind of friendship uh, where we were just very much tied to each other. We were never in a relationship, but there was always this undercurrent of a love that was beyond platonic. And I think the relationship between Needy and Jennifer struck a big chord in me because I was looking at the way that Needy is with Jennifer, the way that... They have this kind of, like I said, very unhealthy dynamic, but with this this incredible love and desire underneath it. And it I, I'm talking myself in circles, but it struck it struck a chord with me and I mm-hmm. recognized myself in that. Um, 
the there's so many scenes in that in that film where they have those kind of little moments of like jealousy over a guy that the other one is talking to and and yes maybe the message is are you going to abandon our friendship for this guy but maybe at the same time it's a little bit of why aren't you talking to me like that right and i remember when this girl in high school started dating somebody and i was so devastated that I honestly assumed because heteronormativity is a hell of a drug that I must have had a crush on the guy she was dating. And I was like, I didn't think I liked him, but I'm so sad. I must like him. Um, Wow. Talk about peeling back the layers of our society. Yeah. Um, And then it took me several years to look back and realize, amongst many other factors, that it was because I was in love with her. Well, you know what I, I'm really thinking is impactful and powerful about just the whole narrative of this discussion so far mm-hmm. is sort of you, this idea that you, when you found the horror movies, mm-hmm. whether it was for catharsis or for identity, you were mm-hmm. finding empowerment, you're claiming your identity through this thing that you once were afraid of. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, isn't that kind of the queer journey? This yes. thing of us like finding ourselves after being afraid of it for so long. And I think maybe uh, in some way that's why queer people are drawn to horror or or even just the otherness of it all, the, yes. out, the outsider that's drawn into this because it's not even sometimes about the monster or the scares. It's about the, oh, this movie's kind of like the black sheep and so am I. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I just think I'm really interested in, in this because obviously the, I'm interested in it as a larger macro idea. Mm-hmm. But in the micro here with with you, you're, you're talking about two kind of big moments in your life mm-hmm. that y- you helped kind of re-rack and reset because of horror films. Mm-hmm. So... And now you you work in genre. I do. I do. I work specifically for a, uh, a podcast that came out of a subreddit that I used to read during study hall and give myself nightmares. Uh, but and actually, speaking of speaking of queer horror, one of my favorite things about working at No Sleep has been that we have a very like uh, LGBTQ heavy creative team. Like a lot of the performers and a lot of the writers are in the community to the point that we've done two years in a row now Pride episodes that were all queer writers and like kind of prioritizing queer cast members. Um, And I think that's been such a natural combination of things. And it's always been so shocking to me because there's always some assholes on Twitter who are going to get mad about that. And I always think that's so not funny, but baffling i think what are you doing in horror if you think that why are you here this isn't for you it's strange though isn't Mm -hmm. it that this genre that you and i can look at and say this this should be the all-inclusive genre Mm -hmm. there is still sort of an old guard right and we were at this weekend both mutually we were at the etheria film night which is Mm -hmm. a celebration of women in genre and it was uh, lovely to see so many artists and friends and faces there marvelous but i I think that any uh of of the women in the world of genre that i know like you know whether it be you or chelsea stardust or mallory o'mara some of the people that we interacted with that day, I, I'm sure at some point you had that guy that was like, girls don't like horror. Mm-hmm. Do you do you still run into resistance from men in genre? Oh, absolutely. Um, whether it's that sort of disbelief of it or sort of, oh, there's also this weird, 
or not weird, it's not surprising in any way, but there's definitely a resistance that I think a lot of male audience members have to the kinds of, some of the kinds of horror films women are starting to make. You have people sort of trying to pick and gatekeep the genre. Like you have people say like, oh, The Babadook's not really horror or Raw's not really horror or this isn't really, like I see that, yeah, specifically with, I just named two of my favorite (laughs) female-led horror films of the last like several years. But you see that happen again and it's also why I think Jennifer's body didn't get the reception it deserved when it first opened. It was. It is a very, very well-made, very clever, very impactful film that was decimated at the box office, had, was ripped apart by critics, because I think predominantly there's a lot of male horror fans that don't know how to look at something and think, oh, maybe for once this story isn't for me. <laughs> Well, I mean, and now we're going to events that show mm-hmm. this genre is for everyone. And if you don't like it, it's time to either evolve or get out. Right. And I, I always think it's so ridiculous. Like, what kind of tunnel vision must you have to have, like, to be in the world of horror? Specifically, I always think about a, I always think about vampire stories, like vampire novels going back. Like, obviously, you have Anne Rice and Interview with a Vampire, which is an incredibly gay film. And then you have, uh, you go back, farther back, and you have Carmilla, which is one of the first big vampire stories you can find and is just, <laughs> forgive my word choice, oozing with sapphic over and undertones like that's oh, there's no dracula without carmilla no i mean bram stoker was a fan of la Fanu's novel mm-hmm. and so whenever this comes up i always say the most famous vampire in history does not exist without a lesbian vampire first that's right so it's like there we've been here all along mm-hmm. queer has always been part of horror so people that are just now like oh now they want to talk about it i'm like no we've been making your movies and writing your books and mm-hmm. all of this stuff this is ours yeah this is ours you're you're visiting our, <laughs> our playground not yes, vice versa. Exactly. <laughs> it's just like science fiction was essentially pioneered by mary shelley with frankenstein and nobody wants to acknowledge that either um no like women and the queer community and just marginalized people in general have been making these innovative these innovative like subgenres and these new movements of fiction forever. <laughs> I know and I keep thinking about whenever we talk about the marginalized community's engagement with horror in that recent horror noir documentary. Oh yes. Uh Tanner so of Dude said in like it's in the trailer. She mm-hmm. said, you know, we've always been interested in horror it's just horror hasn't always been interested in us yes. when and, and you know obviously that documentary specifically is with the black experience in horror right. but when you expand that idea to the, the marginalized communities and the gatekeepers who don't think we're here meanwhile we've been here all along mm-hmm. it does make for a very fascinating you know it's an, a many layered onion i guess it really is no layers on layers on layers and the more you peel back the more you find <laughs> and it's that's just wild. So, you know, we've gone on a few different paths with this. Uh, your connection to Jennifer's body, your mm-hmm. investment into the world of final girls, your interest in the macabre as a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like you said, it took you a while to fully engage with horror, even though you were always interested in that kind of the ooky spooky. Mm-hmm. But so talk to me a little bit about the origin story. I, I did oh, yeah. a little research. I, I know that you were interested in acting and do have a musical theater musical BFA. Musical theater degree. Yes. But uh, so tell me about that. So like was acting always a path for you? Actually, no. <laughs> or sort of. I was a child who loved attention. Uh, I was an only child. 
And I have, I joke about this a lot that I had maybe perhaps if parents can be too supportive, perhaps mine were, uh, they sort of encouraged and allowed me to have a platform to perform at all times. Like I would, they would let me like pull out like a shitty MIDI uh, karaoke track of On My Own from Les Mis and sing it at like <laughs> dinner parties. I sh- they shouldn't have allowed it, but <laughs> I was, I used to do a lot of community theater as a kid and then I sort of fell away from that. And what I was, my gateway into performing was actually music. I actually, my background is actually classical. Um, I studied classical voice for several years in high school and then pivoted that into musical theater voice from there uh, because like many, many, speaking of queer art, many teenage girls I found wicked, uh, a story that is maybe they tamped down the subtext for the musical. But if you read the book, it's 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 not subtle, Um, but (laughs) uh, so then I, I, I went into musical theater from there and then I went to college for it and discovered Essentially, as much as I love the uh, as much as I love the world of musical theater, uh, this is going to sound ridiculous as like a five foot three, like blonde white girl that there was not like really a place for me in it. Mm hmm. And it's it's because it's a very I love it a lot. And there's a lot changing and there's a lot happening in musical theater. But in a lot of ways, it's still this incredibly regressive art form. Uh, and there's not really a lot of room for even just character types that don't fit well into boxes, uh, even more so than film. Like you're seeing a bit of a shift in film and I think theater is coming there, but musical theater specifically is about a couple decades behind, almost always. Uh, and it it didn't, something wasn't fitting, something wasn't working and I wasn't, I was I was not really happy in my classes anymore and I wasn't in any getting cast in anything over and over again. I felt like I was just bumping up against this wall and I sort of retreated inward and I didn't really leave my apartment much. This is when I started watching just tons of horror movies and when I got really into listening to lots of horror fiction, specifically the No Sleep podcast and... This is, I almost hate telling this part because it sounds so ridiculous that I just kind of thought, oh, you know what? I have an acting degree I'm not using. I should, well, I should ask and see if they need any more people. And I uh, recorded a demo off of a couple stories I pulled off of Reddit slash, or off of our short scary stories on Reddit. And uh, with a couple dialects, sent them into David, who's the producer, uh, the showrunner of No Sleep. And got hired, which was not what I was expecting to happen. And now I've been with them for three years, and it has been probably one of the best things that could have happened to me. Right around when I started working at No Sleep, I also got uh, added to the roster of women at the Horror Honeys, which is not an active site anymore, but was my gateway into really thinking and writing and talking about horror movies and TV. I started there doing... um, TV coverage. Uh, So I covered like season three of Black Mirror for them. And I covered the first two seasons of Channel Zero for them, which I love. I love Channel Zero. I interviewed Nick and Tosca right when uh, the first season came out. It was so it was one of the coolest interviews I did there. He was so wonderful. And uh, that was sort of the gateway into at the same time as I started performing horror, I started really sinking my teeth in and writing about it and also it was through the horror honeys that i wrote my first piece about jennifer's body which was for the print magazine belladonna where i wrote about the fact that uh jennifer's body was marketed in a way that framed it as very much a male gaze story but it is a story with an pretty much entirely female creative team and 
also the way that uh, Amanda Seyfried's character is framed in that. I've talked about this before. I talk about it with anyone who will let me, that she is... They've deliberately toned down her sexuality, or not her sexuality, they've deliberately toned down her hotness and her, like, her appeal to a male audience. They've, like, taken her makeup off, they put her in these big sweaters and these little wire-rimmed glasses and, like, kind of frizzy hair. And her, so her kissing Megan Fox's character in that movie, I've said this before, it's, that's not a male fantasy, that's a queer female fantasy. Because, like, the point of view character is not the voyeur watching them kiss, it's it's Needy being the nerdy girl who gets to kiss Megan Fox. And that, then, the marketing is indicative of a culture that doesn't understand that. They, they, mm-hmm. they cannot see that there would be an intended audience for this other than... Mm-hmm horny straight white guys or like horny men. Well, we don't know how to frame, I say we, I should say like a lot of mainstream people in entertainment don't know how to frame queer female sexuality when it's not for male consumption. Right. And it's it's very difficult to wrap your mind around the fact that this sequence of two teenage girls kissing when one of them is someone who's been sort of forced into this role of sex symbol for teenage boys, that that wouldn't be for the teenage boys watching. Yeah, it's very subversive and mm-hmm. uh, in a way that is empowering, mm-hmm. which, again, is sort of like the full circle discussion. Yes. <laughs> uh, I love that you essentially kind of baptized yourself in horror as, as you were like removing yourself from musical theater. It's like, mm-hmm. well, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to start writing for this. Mm-hmm. I was, I'm very interested in, in what you were talking about, uh, how theater, uh, musical theater specifically, still has uh, a, a ways to go with it in terms of the idea that if you don't fit in specific boxes then there doesn't feel like there's a place for you. Because mm-hmm. what's interesting to me is when we think of art, mm-hmm. art is always supposed to be kind of the the fight back against the establishment. Mm-hmm. But the problem, too, is when we, we hold something to such esteem. Musical theater, is, as we all say, it's an institution. Yes, but what is. is an institution if not an establishment? Exactly. And here's the problem with musical theater. I'm, I feel like some of my cl- old classmates are going to hear this and I'm going to catch some flack. What, here we are. But Broadway is currently in a place where there's a lot of really new and innovative art being created. There are a lot of amazing shows happening. Hamilton happened. Uh, Fun Home happened. Hades Town is right now. The Prom. But Broadway is not what most of the industry is. Most of musical theater, and this is what they train you for when you're in an, uh, a BFA program, uh, is doing is regional work. And regional theaters are, for the most part, doing about the same 20 shows over and over and over again that are all from the 1950s and 60s and have not been changed since then. So it's this very weird (laughs) dichotomy where you have these innovative new kind of just like boundary pushing shows being done in in New York, but in the rest of the world you're doing the same unchanged productions of Pirates of Penzance and Guys and Dolls in Oklahoma, things that were actually kind of like we were talking about with I Spit on Your Grave and all these other things that were revolutionary when they came out. Oklahoma was incredibly revolutionary when it first came out, when it was first premiered. But God, it has a lot of things to say about the role of women and uh, just the way the world of it is constructed that just don't feel like they belong in 2019. I will make an exception for the production that's being done in New York right now. I was going to yeah. ask you, what, what are your thoughts on that? I actually am only just now sort of hearing mm-hmm. about this new uh, version of Oklahoma. I'm very conflicted about that because on one hand, I love the idea of subverting 
classics. And I also know that classics sell. And at a certain point, you have to kind of keep doing these so that, sorry to say, but like old people keep buying tickets to your shows. But at the same time, part of me feels the same way I feel about a lot of film remakes. I'm like, it's cool to have a modern spin on this. But what if instead we put our our funds toward fresh voices, fresh playwrights and and lyricists and composers who are telling new stories as opposed to putting it's cool to put a revolutionary spin on Oklahoma, but at the same time, it was still written by a bunch of dead white guys. It's still the same. So I feel very conflicted about it. I'm very happy for the director and the cast and what they've done with it. But at the same time, I wish we could put that energy into new stories. I can't disagree with that. Yeah. Uh, so one thing I always like to ask people who come from the world of musical theater who are in horror uh, it is, is, do you feel that there is a kinship between the world of musicals and the world of horror? Oh, absolutely. 100%. Uh, what is Phantom of the Opera? <laughs> one of the first musicals I got really into, it's not so much my favorite anymore, but this was sort of a very watered down version of horror elements I could get into when I was in like my early teen years. I was very into Phantom of the Opera. And uh, particularly, there's a lot of overlap, I think, between like classic Gothic horror and musical theater. Also because musical theater spun out from sort of opera and that world, and there's a lot of crossover there, you have things like Don Giovanni, which ends with the protagonist being dragged into hell by demons. So horror elements in like the worlds of opera and musical theater, I think they fit pretty well there. You have, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I don't, I have not seen American Psycho the musical. I've heard very mixed things. Uh <laughs> But I also love, I think Phantom is really, works really well. You have sort of the iconic moment where the chandelier drops. Like that feels like almost, it's a live theater jump scare. It's, you have these, these elements sort of cropping up. And I just personally think a lot of old horror, specifically older horror, more classic horror, it's coming from this very kind of campy place where a lot of it, especially as you look back on it, I think about Evil Dead all the time and what a great musical Evil Dead makes. <laughs> I love Evil Dead the musical. I right. still do music from it. Uh, one of my last performances before I left, before I, I say I left, graduated, was I uh, did performed at a Halloween cabaret and sang All the Men in My Life Keep Getting Killed by Kandarian Demons from Evil Dead the musical. Uh, <laughs> it's a good number. It's a great number. It's in my book. If anyone, I've got my 16 bar cut. If anyone needs to, <laughs> if anyone's looking for uh, an Annie. Um, anyway, <laughs> but I think there's something to be said for it's this very big and very in your face genre. And it can be very small and subtle, but traditionally, and musical theater is traditionally also very big and in your face and very boundary pushing and. I don't know. I just see them as natural companions. Well, I think they're both about uh, heightened presentation. They are. Yeah. Um, They are. And I also can't help but think about a movie that I know some people don't like, but I really like. Uh, And I don't mean the old movie. I mean the one with Meatloaf, Stage Fright. Oh, well, you know, I just had uh, the... the director and writer of Stage Fright on a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, as long I saw as the editor, yeah. uh, I love that movie. <laughs> we were talking about that while he was here, the idea that he himself is aware that the film is divisive. Mm-hmm. But it was sort of like he wanted to take the uh, sort of issues that he had with musical theater mm-hmm. and ram them against a horror movie also while being respectful of both. Yes. And I think that th- what you're saying is really interesting because they can coexist. They can. And I and as someone I watched it I watched it 
while I was finishing up my musical theater degree and I was it was thrilling. Oh, I loved it. I was I was so I just put it on on an impulse. I saw it on Netflix and went, oh, meatloaf. What? OK. And then I put it on and it was ah, thrilling. Oh, and then, of course, I can't believe we've gone this long without me bringing up another work that maybe does not age as well as it could, but uh, combines horror and musical theater elements. The Rocky Horror Picture Show. I think Rocky Horror has forever earned its place. Yeah. Uh, in both the musical, of course, canon, but the, the cult canon. Because mm-hmm. when we think of cult midnight movies, it it's, is the cult midnight It's the gold movie. standard. Yeah. yeah. And yes, I think that you're right. Maybe it hasn't aged as well as others. Yes. <laughs> but the thing that I will say, I actually just wrote about this. Uh, you know, this is where I briefly plug myself. No, do uh, I, I did a piece for Pride Month for uh, Dread Central where mm-hmm. I, I listed 10 of my favorite queer horror movies. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, I, I offered things from different eras of, you know, different places in the LGBTQ spectrum. Mm-hmm. But I put Rocky Horror at number one and my defense of it was this. For so many people... That movie is the rallying cry for the generation before who couldn't be out in Mm -hmm. high school or out in the world or maybe didn't even know who they were. Mm -hmm. Here's a movie that literally the through line is don't dream it, be it. And maybe for one night, if you can go put on that mascara and like your leather jacket and sing along with a group of people and feel like you belong for 90 minutes, that's powerful. It had an out queer lead character in a time when no one was putting queer characters on screen. And so Rocky Horror, the fact that it is the longest theatrical run of any motion picture of all time, it's not only because it's fun, because it's campy, because it is culty. Mm-hmm. It's because it's needed. Absolutely. And I will say also, meeting the musical theater world again, it's it obviously is a musical, but in undergrad, uh, two years in a row, we had live performances, a student run. I was not in it. I went to see it both times. Student run live performances of the musical in the back room of this local bar. And it was always just this incredible experience, this incredible community experience specifically. But no, I agree with that. I can't believe I was talking about musical theater and horror for that long before I remembered to talk about Rocky. <laughs> but No, but it's always good when it comes up. Oh, it really is. And then, of course, obviously you have things like Little Shop of Horrors. And I just think that, no, they live together so beautifully. Uh, and I, I want to see more of it because I know they've made some, there have been some very fun, like, unauthorized musicals, including... I was enraged, actually, a little when I found this out. There was an unauthorized Jennifer's Body musical, and I was very, very sad because in undergrad, something I started wanting to do was write a Jennifer's Body musical. Uh, but Well, that doesn't mean you can't do the official true. Jennifer's Maybe. Body musical. If anyone's listening, I will write the book for the official Jennifer's Body musical. I've wanted, I've wanted to for so long. I feel like it would really work with like an indie rock kind of... A mix kind of the indie rock low shoulder of it all with sort of a Riot Girl vibe. Ooh. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Have we ever had a, a proper Riot Girl musical? I don't think we have. Well, you know, maybe now's the time. Maybe Madison. it might be. Maybe now's the time. <laughs> Look, my background is in playwriting. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Okay. Uh, so this, this, I'm loving this discussion, um, <laughs> but I also want to talk a little bit about some of your other work in the world of horror. Oh yeah, please. And, and this is, this is kind of a great segue because when we talk about Phantom of the Opera and you said how that was sort of your gateway mix of horror and musical, <laughs> in the narrative of Phantom, one of the things that, uh, is the through line at the, in the first act is that the hearsay, the idea that the Phantom exists, but mm-hmm. like 
they can't quite prove it and they don't know and it's just a legend. Mm -hmm. And what you do at Cryptid Keeper is talk about the real life legends. The idea of cryptozoological research, the Mothman, the Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster. Talk to me about this world and what led you there. So uh, some of this is because this goes all the way back to baby macabre Addison and me being obsessed with all these sort of unexplained things. This My gateway into all of this was actually, I don't, I've gone on this journey before. I can't find these books. If anyone knows what I'm talking about, please let me know. There was a three pack of books. They were paperback and they had sort of the glossy cover of like a magazine, but they were print books. And there was a vampires one, a ghosts one, and an aliens one. They came in a three pack. I had them as a child. I was obsessed with them. I don't know <laughs> what they were or where they came from. I have, I don't have the origin story for them. But the aliens one was sort of my gateway into a lot of the sort of the aliens and the ghosts one, two and two, were my gateway into a lot of the sort of the real world of paranormal research. And I was determined for a very long period of time uh, in my childhood that I was going to become a ghost hunter. There's a section of the ghost book that was like, this is what you need for your ghost hunting kit. You need baby powder to put so you can see if something walks through it. And you need um, an, an EVP recorder. And you need this and this and like a black light and all these things. And I, I bought into it so heavily. And I, I thought, I am going to be a ghost or ghost researcher. I'm going to be a paranormal researcher. And then that went away for a while. And then I got a little older and I got back into just kind of the the fun of the kind of just the fun silliness of things like Nessie and Bigfoot. And I think I it was a podcast. It was a storytelling podcast. And I wish I could remember what it was. It might have been Risk. It might have been an episode of Risk where a woman was talking about going on a Bigfoot hunt. And Something about that just really charmed me and really just sparked something in my head. And I thought that was kind of strange and lovely and and wonderful. And I really love the sort of willingness to in adults to believe in things that seem impossible or that there's no reason to believe in. And since I've never been a particularly religious person, that was sort of my version of faith, uh, being willing to sort of suspend my scientific mind or my 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 skeptic mind and my disbelief and want to throw myself into these things and then honestly the podcast itself was born from a pun over a couple of beers in a british pub after my friend got off of work uh she and i were joking about how much we both love sort of folk stories and like she has a background alex my co-host has a background in studying a lot of like she's from west virginia studying a lot of appalachian like folk tales and right. like oral histories oral storytelling and she's from not very far from where the mothman was seen and actually her boyfriend proposed to her in front of the mothman statue point pleasant right yes yes uh her she and her fiance got engaged in front of the mothman statue in point pleasant <laughs> I love uh, that. because love is real and <laughs> but when that started actually that was when i really got back into it and i was like a kid again because we started the show and i thought oh i guess i gotta start researching these things again and so I would go down just these massive internet research rabbit holes of like the Dover Demon and the Jersey Devil. And it's just it's just exciting. It's like being a kid again because I I don't know how much I genuinely believe in a lot of these things. But I can say it gives me the same kind of thrill that being a kid and waiting for the tooth fairy or Santa Claus gave me. There's this this willingness to really believe in these and these things that are maybe impossible, maybe ridiculous, but maybe not because then you have some that are 
pretty reasonable. Like a lot of deep sea creatures, I talk about this a lot, is we have no idea what's in 80% of the ocean. Right. The ocean is is absolutely a mystery. We didn't think colossal squids existed until very recently. We just, a couple years ago, had the first footage of a giant squid in its natural habitat. And it's horrifying. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I've seen it and it's scary. I have thalassophobia. So this is another example of me being afraid of a thing and then becoming obsessed with it. Uh, If you don't know what thalassophobia is, by the way, for anyone listening or you, it's the fear of open water. Um, Oh, well, then this is is the show for you to host then, clearly, (laughs) because that's... (laughs) You have to deal with all of the things underwater. Yeah, right. Well, I and I, I do research a lot of them because it's so much like when I was a kid and obsessed with death and I would just read about ghosts and mummies and medieval torture because I, I'm i constantly reading about creatures in the deep ocean because I'm terrified of it. Well, the thing, too, about cryptozoological research, it's like you said, there is the element of mythology, mm-hmm. but then there's the element of doubt that sometimes there are things in nature we just don't know. Yes. And there are animals and creatures that we have since confirmed mm-hmm. that if you say to the world, like, it may seem preposterous that there's a Mothman, but in the 1800s, they didn't believe gorillas existed or like a specific kind of gorilla. Yeah, or even just barely, yeah. not too, too, too long ago, we confirmed the existence of the quokka, which I'm sure you've seen. It's this very friendly faced little like uh, fuzzy mammal in uh, Australia. Or uh, people thought that the eye, which is that, have you seen them? Eye eyes, they are A-Y-E, A-Y-E. They have these big bush baby eyes and these creepy long fingers, and they definitely look fake, but they're real. And they were figures in sort of mythology for a long time before we confirmed these are a real animal. And so I think the line we try to straddle on Cryptid Keeper is sort of where the folklore and the mysticism meets the sort of the science and the research of it all and the just there's so much about the natural world we don't know Mm -hmm. because we've done episodes on things that are purely unscientific we just did one fairly recently on bloody mary but uh we want to kind of ride that line of like some of these things may be completely out of completely out of the question but a lot of them could just be animals we haven't seen yet so you're you're a scully who wants to be a Mulder. I am. I really am. We talk about, or I talk about this a lot, like wanting to just, I, I, I talk about choosing to believe in things sometimes because mm-hmm. I think it makes the world a lot more fun. Okay. So what, it, for the fun of it, what is your favorite cryptid? Oof. <laughs> and, That's a big question. And while you're thinking about that, what's a cryptid that you think is lesser known that people should know about? Ooh, ooh, ooh. Sorry. That's a great question. Oh my gosh. I think... Mm, favorite of all time. I, I probably want to go with one of the classics. Like, I really probably want to go with a Bigfoot uh, for my personal favorite. I Just the more you learn about Bigfoot, did you know that Bigfoot is female? Um, feminist icon Bigfoot. We stand and we love her. Right. Uh, but that's actually a thing. You can do some fun research on that. But the, the Bigfoot that supposedly is the one that people have spotted is supposed to be a female of whatever species that is. Right. Uh, so I have my own love of Bigfoot. But then aside from Bigfoot, another personal favorite of mine is probably the Flatwoods Monster. Okay. Uh, the Flatwoods Monster was an alien sighting in West Virginia. Um, and the description is just, I just love the way uh, it, I always call her she because we had a whole run about this on the show, but um, is rendered, she has this like big billowing, like this cape and these glowing eyes and these like tall, tall boots. And she just looks good. She's just, I love her. <laughs> um, and then cryptids that people don't know about, there are all these weird little, uh, there are all these weird little super local stories that you come across. And it always makes me sad because a lot of them don't, don't 
they don't, there's not enough content to do a full episode about them. But, oh, man, particularly I'm very attached to a lot of uh, we we cover a lot of things that are covered in this book called Fearsome Critters of the Lumberwoods, which is this old book, like kind of folksy tome. And parts of it are definitely clearly not meant to be taken seriously, but parts of it are. And it's from, uh, oh, God, it's really old. I don't even remember the publication date, but it's from the early days of of uh, lumberjacks in like the greater forests of the U.S. and seeing, especially out west, seeing all kinds of strange things. And one of my personal favorites is probably, uh, is probably we did a bonus episode on this. People should know about the tea kettler. The tea kettler. The tea kettler. Now the tea kettler uh, is little. It looks like a dog with stubby legs. I always picture a corgi. It runs backwards, and as it runs, it emits a high squealing sound like a teapot. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. It's the whole thing. You know, I love I love a creature that's not necessarily terrifying. Because isn't it interesting? It's just weird. <laughs> when when uh, when I was growing up, I used to listen to Coast to Coast. Oh yes, with Art Bell. We talk and, about them quite a lot. And uh, that was the thing. It's interesting because I feel like the 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 mysticism and the legacy of Coast to Coast is sort of lost with the digital generation. Mm-hmm. But it was this AM show where they would just go off and uh, explore the unknown and talk about spook spookery. <laughs> and uh, I and I you know it was like the late eighties, early nineties, and most most of the time, the people who had the ability to call in live were like truckers with CB radios who were like on no hours of sleep. So they're, of course, seeing things in the middle of the desert. Yeah. Uh, but when you're a kid, you're like, oh, my God, of course, the chupacabra. Yes. That's like literally like, just <laughs> of course, the chupacabra. We and actually <laughs> had I, I love one of my favorite things. We had a friend of the show, um, uh, Lauren Melisi. She's a poet, but she also like uh, she has a her abuela. Um, she is. Uh, like has Puerto Rican family and she wanted to come on to talk about El Chupacabra because she talked about being a kid and El Chupacabra was on some animated show. It was maybe like a Dexter's Laboratory or something and her and her, her abuela just looks at her and goes, that's not what it looks like. Because <laughs> she had apparently seen it and that was, you hear, I just remember laughing so hard at that. I'm not <laughs> being a kid and your grandma just being like, oh, no, 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 it's real, but that's not what it looks like. So um, do you have like your mental master list of real or not like you've decided like you've or or, I, the, or you want them all to be real? I want it all to be real. Well, some I don't really want to be real because scary. But <laughs> I, I have a tendency to just sort of have my general stance on some of them. I'm almost just certain like a lot of the ones that are just basically large variations on existing animals, things like that. I'm like, no, that's definitely real. We just haven't confirmed it. And then the rest I just am willing to sort of exist in a space of. I kind of love that when it comes to certain cryptids, the internet has turned them into sort of like twee icons. Like, they've taken the scary away. It's sort of like your whole journey of like, I was obsessed with it and I was scared of it, but mm-hmm. now I like love it. Mm-hmm. And if you go on to Etsy or Tumblr or, you know, Pinterest, Mothman is like an animated cutesy icon oh, now. Yeah. And like you said, I'm sure there are there are Nessie pl- plushy animals. And- oh, yeah. I have a patch uh, on a jacket somewhere that's a Nessie patch that says Nessie's girl on it. Um, (laughs) There's no, you absolutely see that. And I also think 
this ties very well into what we're talking about. Something I noticed ever since we started the show that's been really thrilling and lovely to me is how much the cryptozoology community and the queer community intersect. Well, do you think, again, it has to go back to the earlier conversation we had of otherness? Yes. Like, of course, when we talk about queerness and horror, horror being the genre of otherness and who understands otherness more than queer people. Mm-hmm. But, like, if you are out in the natural world, mm-hmm. a cryptid is is the other. Yes. It's, it is like not part of the animal kingdom and it's not part of the scientific community but as we know some cryptids are actually real and and some maybe maybe Mm -hmm. so yeah I could see it an incredibly large portion of our listener base obviously this is probably also because my co-host and I are both in the in the queer community as well but an incredibly large portion of our listener base and the people who really engage with a lot of the creatures that we cover are in the community. And when I first started noticing that, of course, it made so much sense to me. And you even get people, I love it, uh, doing things like someone made a like butch like to femme alignment chart with cryptids filled into it, like the uh, Flatwoods Monsters high femme and uh, et cetera. Um, and I remember being so delighted by that. And oh, So if, if the if Flatwood Monster is high femme, what on, on the opposite end of the scale? I don't remember who was... I don't remember which cryptid was the butch icon. I don't remember who it was. I have to. F- I'm gonna find it. and I'll send it to you when I can find it again. I can't wait. And I, uh, listeners, uh, I will make sure to tweet it on the Dead for Filth account as well. So yeah, several people have sent it to us, so I'll find it pretty easily. Great, <laughs> I great. just, it's so I, I, it's that crossover with horror and with cryptids and just the otherness and monsters. And I think also something I see come up a lot too is. Uh, so many pieces of media that were trying to villainize queerness, queer-coded monsters and villains. And it backfired in a lot of ways, I think, because instead of just making us afraid to be queer, it just meant that a lot of us identify with those as- with those traits and those characters yeah. even more. Um, like, God, they were trying to maybe scare me away from liking women with all the like scary lesbian vampires of the 70s and 80s and such. But all it did was mean that I love goth girls. <laughs> yeah, I think that vampire uh, literature especially, like, it's sexy. Oh, God, yes. And so if you're trying to steer us away, <laughs> you know, I don't know, Anne Rice. You just made me kind of like, speci- spe- it specifically threw me into like, oh, I like that kind of guy. Yeah, yeah truly, yeah. all I- it means is that I like women with dark circles under their eyes and lots of <laughs> eyeliner and maybe a leather jacket. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, as this is a show in service and worship of movies, I have to ask before we head off into the night, what have you seen recently that you love, that inspires you? What are you watching? Oh, gosh, that's such a good question. Um, haven't seen it yet, but I should note that I'm about to, uh, a couple hours from now, go see Midsummer, uh, oh. which I'm very excited about. But what have I been watching? Not a movie, but I did just finish all of Sharp Objects on HBO. Uh, well, first off, I, any any show uh, with Amy Adams and Patricia Clarkson is mm. going to be a, a, uh, something I enjoy. But uh, that's a good one. I loved Sharp Objects. I, I, I stayed up until three o'clock in the morning to finish it because I couldn't stop watching it. I, I think. It is, I think, and this is another example of, I think, we. I want to see more women writing thriller and horror because Gillian Flynn, my God, is she a master of tension? Is she just, I think she's like a, she's like V.C. Andrews and Hitchcock had a weird baby. I love her. <laughs> um, and so I did watch that. I just, oh God, I just recently dove back into Raw to write a piece about New French Extremity. So I, which actually should be going out, uh, it's going to be running on Film and Fishnets uh, sometime in the next week. 
But uh, specifically, I revisited Raw for that piece, and I think it's still something about that movie really grips me. It's not a movie I expected to really enjoy going in very much. I watched it for the novelty of it all because everyone was talking about, oh, it's so gross. I didn't think it was that gross. It's also surprisingly funnier than I think it's people so think It's so funny. It is, yeah. Oh, my God, the scene with her and her sister on the roof. And she's like, no, I know how to pee like a guy. And then she just pees on herself. Um, <laughs> but spoilers, I guess, for an innocuous scene in, in Raw. But I, I'm obsessed with that movie. I think it is a really, even though people talk about it a lot, I think it's, inc- I think it's criminally underrated. And I think that it should be <laughs> discussed a lot more. But that's, those are my two, gosh, those are the two things I've been really, really, that's where my head's been at lately. And then maybe Midsummer. I guess I'll find out when I see it. Well, I'll have to check back and see what you thought. Yeah. Uh, Well, so beyond the piece on Raw, what's next for you? What can we look for? Uh, What are you doing? Oh, well, I uh, continue to be on the No Sleep podcast. Uh, You can find that wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, And let's see. What else? Uh, Cryptid Keeper. Um, Mostly those are my my big things. Those are just ongoing. Um, Let's see. I think that's... Yeah, that's everything right now. Yeah, just my my shows that I'm um, a recurring cast member on No Sleep, so I pop up pretty much every week on there. And then the Cryptic Keeper is I'm half of the show. So also, uh, <laughs> we're about to do our first ever live show in Chicago for the Cryptic Keeper on July 6th. Uh, so if I don't know. Um, so and if that goes well, we're going to try to do more. So. Awesome. I mean, two ongoing shows plus writing gigs. That's that's a busy schedule. She's working on it plus trying to get my master's. Oh, um, cool. Well, uh, Addison, thank you so much for coming and talking to us today and sharing your stories and sharing your own journey into horror and and the things that you love and celebrate. Where can people find you? Oh, uh, good question. I'm mostly on Twitter. Uh, I I have other social medias, but that's where you're going to find me being most active. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Addison underscore Peacock. It's A-D-D-I-S-O-N underscore and then Peacock like the bird. Uh, And then I'm on Instagram under the same, but mainly you're going to find me there. And then I have a website. uh, It's just AddisonPeacock.com. If you want sort of like a locale where a lot of my work is sort of compiled. Oh, I did actually also, if you want to listen to it, you can find a link to it on my website. I wrote a uh, short horror radio play for my alma mater to perform for Halloween last, or uh, in October. Oh, awesome. Yeah. It was just, um, it was, it's called On the Air. It's just a short piece about basically a campus radio that gets a call in from a girl who's very distressed after visiting the ruins of a ho- of an old hospital and things go wrong very fast. It's just a short kind of creepy little ghost story I wrote for them and you can find a link to it on my website. So. That's exciting. Well, thank you again so much. Thank you for having me. Listeners, please keep up with Addison. Uh, check out No Sleep. Check out Cryptid Keeper. And if you are in Chicago, please go see her at the live show if that's a thing that you uh, like to go out and do and experience live events. And you should because <laughs> get out of the house sometimes. Thank you. Thank you, Addison. I'm Michael Verratti. Yours always in Glam and Gore. This has been Dead for Filth. Good night and good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie original podcast, executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels, LaShawn McGee, Chris Rodriguez, and Damian Pelliccione. The show is produced by Drew Phillips and sound engineered and edited by Josh Perkins. Download the Reverie app and use the code FILTH for 25% off your first three months. <laughs>